We're playing in Tuscaloosa, you know, beating Alabama at home is one thing to go on the road. It's different. I know Texas did it, but uh, we'll have our hands full Saturday, I'm afraid. Let's hope. <laughs> Welcome to Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy, and we appreciate you being with us. Today is Thursday, October 19th, and we hope that you're enjoying the show wherever you're getting it, whether that's on Spotify or the Apple Podcast platform, or if you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel, just take a half second, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And then if you could leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, if you could leave us a review, that'd mean a lot as well. And then on ESPN's YouTube channel, subscribe to the ESPN College Football page, hit that thumbs up button right below the video. We really, really appreciate you. Alongside are Mark Kubiak, Jack Foster, and Jake Garcia. Peyton Manning obviously joins the show. Talk a little Alabama, Tennessee. You know he's going to have a couple jabs. You know he's going to throw a couple punches, but I hope that I can stand up at least for the Alabama side of the rivalry here in the third Saturday of October. I think we have the best previews in all of the podcast college football world. I believe it. I've listened to all the other podcasts. I think we do as good a job as anybody as far as breaking these games down, give you some stats, give you some trends, give you some things to consider when looking at some of these matchups. And we have some great ones coming up this week. We'll obviously talk Bama, Tennessee, talk it with the sheriff, but we'll also talk about it in a little bit deeper perspective as well. Penn State, Ohio State, the game of the weekend. Duke, can they knock off a Florida State team that seems to be finding themselves. You got a playoff game involving Utah and USC. Winner's still alive. Loser is out. And then you have a, I think, a really interesting matchup between Washington State and against Oregon. And then finally, we'll break down at length Auburn and Ole Miss. So let's not waste any additional time. Let's get to some of these breakdowns. And of course, the Sheriff, Peyton Manning, joining here on Always College Football. Always happy to be joined by our good friend Peyton Manning, who uh, we weren't going to have him back this year, but since Tennessee won last year, we figured why not keep a good thing going. Peyton, how we doing, my friend? Doing good, Greg. Uh, I'm a little worried about uh, about Saturday. We're playing in Tuscaloosa. You know, beating Alabama at home is one thing to go on the road. It's different. I know Texas did it, but uh, we'll have our hands full Saturday, I'm afraid. Is there any truth to the fact that you actually wouldn't play in Tuscaloosa? You just would only play in Birmingham when you were in school at Tennessee? It was. It was in my, um, you know, NIL contract. I was doing NIL uh, way back in the mid-90s. Uh, free chicken wings at uh, OCI and free burgers at Gus's Good Times Deli uh, after midnight. Those were my deals. But, uh, yeah, I only wanted to play in Birmingham, Legion Fields, where my dad played. That was part of the deal. Ended up being a good choice, uh, I would say. <laughs> it worked out okay for you, but I can understand it. Brian Denny's just a little intimidating for you. It's no big deal. It, it makes sense. I mean, you played in a few hostile environments, I would imagine, whether it be Seattle or other places in the league. Um, but Brian Denny, I, I think it would have probably altered the outcome of some of those games. Is that fair? It's Yeah, look, it, it's a loud place. I've been there the past few years, uh, uh on the sidelines, you know, I never, never having played there, but uh, it is a loud place uh, and, and hostile, obviously tough place to win. Um, and uh, so we'll see, right. I mean, uh, yeah, um, I know, I know Josh is, is challenging, challenging the guys to be a good road team, right. We uh, didn't, didn't do as well on the road last year, right. Losing in Athens, losing in South Carolina. So 
to be kind of road tested is kind of key to being a good football team. We had a tough loss in Gainesville early this year. So this will be this will be the best test of the season for sure. I'm I'm kind of hoping, at least as an Alabama guy for the moment, uh usually you you know, there might be have a hangover game after after a previous week's result that was dicey, whether win or loss. I was kind of hoping for like a hangover year from Tennessee and it hasn't really materialized. Uh, you guys are still in a pretty good spot. So you've watched them. What have you seen from your team? Yeah, I feel like we're still still kind of getting our identity on on offense a little bit. We're running the ball well. Uh, you, know, you know, to me, to beat an Alabama at home or to have a chance against Georgia, um, you got to be, you know, three-dimensional, right? You got to be able to run the ball, got to be able to drop back and pass, got to be able to have some play action right now. So I still think we're finding our way a little bit. Uh, obviously, we lost some, you know, big playmakers. I mean, how good was Hyatt last year in that Alabama game, right? I have a picture of he and I uh, smoking a cigar. Greg, I know that's been your screensaver uh, for the majority of the year. Uh, I will not be at the game uh, this year. Um, you know, I did storm the field last year. I mentioned smoking the cigar. That's what happens when you when you win, when you beat Alabama, you get a cigar. Great. Uh, so I don't know. Like I said, big shoes to fill from some of those playmakers from last year. But look, big time players, uh, great opportunity to step up in this kind of game. I know Coach Saban and those guys have not forgotten about last year. So uh, I know they'll be uh, very motivated. So I'm looking forward to seeing how our guys step up with the tough road challenge. I'm glad you reminded all the Tennessee fans that are maybe under 16 uh, that you smoke cigars after a win because they they wouldn't have seen that uh, up until that point. Is there rumors? There is. Is there any truth to the rumor that you actually threw the goalposts into the Tennessee River? It's actually a fact. Yeah, uh, I wasn't allowed to say anything. Uh, you know, there were some legal issues uh, throwing into the Tennessee River. Those just got settled, but I can say it now. <laughs> yes, I was the one. Me and my son Marshall uh, and his friend Everett uh, were the ones that threw it into the actual Tennessee river and Pat McAfee and, and oh, wow. Howard as well. So well, naturally that's a, it's a pretty solid, uh, it's a pretty solid quartet of individuals. Uh, <laughs> when you think about the personalities that were on display, uh, when you think about where Tennessee's at running the football and everything, I mean, you've, you kind of talked about it. Like when you, you obviously lived at the line of scrimmage, right? But every, every time someone, every time you handed it off, that was a win for the defense. It felt like, or at least, Right. When we played against you, that's how we felt. <laughs> right. Because if we hand, if we let Peyton hand it off, that's a win, even though his backfield mate might be a Hall of Famer. Uh, so when you're running the ball like that as a quarterback, how do you kind of take a step back and just be okay with the fact that maybe this is our identity moving forward? Well, look, it's all about the team and whatever you got to do to win the game. You know, I feel like in Josh's offense that – the identity can kind of change for that Saturday. Right. I mean, I, you know, I know certain game plans we went in, Hey, let's go in and, and just air it out versus these guys. And the next thing you know, they're dropping eight guys into coverage on first and second down, and they are just not going to let you throw it all day. And all of a sudden we run it for 175 yards. So I feel like Josh's offense has that kind of flexibility that it could be anybody's day on that Saturday, right? Uh, uh, could be the, you know, X receivers uh, day. could be the tight ends day. Obviously, it could be Joe Milton's day. So, uh, hopefully, you know, I feel like we have the kind of playmakers throughout our offense that anybody can step up and have a huge day. Uh, I would just like to see, I know Josh would as well, just a little more balance, right? That, that affects how the defense is going to play you. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's nice 
on a first and 10 if the defense has to worry about three different things happening, right? That puts pressure on a defense. And I was always about who's dictating who, right? I, I want Tennessee's offense to be dictating to the defense. And I think we're doing that at times, maybe just not doing it all the time. Well, it hasn't been since 2003 that Tennessee actually won in Tuscaloosa. I was three years old, uh, yes. give or take. Uh, I think you were probably, what, year nine or ten in the league or so. I, I don't recall. Um, but where were you when that went down in 2003? 03. I mean, I'm in my, uh, let's see, uh, my seven, uh, sixth year in the NFL. Uh, won my first playoff game that year. So that was uh, that was nice. I always enjoyed, you know, he's a good quarterback, but he can't win a playoff game. So I can't exactly remember that game. Um you know, that was kind of uh, – we felt like, you know, we were kind of <laughs> supposed to beat Alabama around that time. And it's kind of at that point when it seemed like uh, Alabama sort of started uh, uh, kind of having the having the say in the series. So, look, this is such a great series. It goes back years and years. It's no fun if one team just wins every year, Greg. So, y'all been selfish. Uh, you haven't, you know, made the rivalry what it was supposed to be, right? I mean, there's one thing to have a little streak every now and then, but, you know, beating us every year since 03 uh, in Tuscaloosa, that's just not, it's not right. So uh, it's, it's rat poison, right? Whatever, yeah. whatever that means when Coach Saban says that, you know, every sixth press conference, right? He's got to throw the rat poison <laughs> word in there. So let's get this series back to being – interesting for teams for 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 viewers right let's let the Vols have one Saturday Nick well, you uh you're not a stranger to a streak uh, nine out of ten there in the late 90s through the early 2000s let's get a prediction from you how do you think it's going to go on Saturday I feel like the best chance for us to win is for it to be low scoring right and I think that means possessing the ball uh you know it, it it's hard for us to control the clock as fast as we run plays, right? I mean, I feel like if Josh is not getting, you know, 90 plays in a game, right, it, it's it's a letdown. It's bad clock management, right? So it's full speed. But, um, you know, I think, like I said, keeping the, keeping the ball, maybe keeping their offense off the field a little bit, um, 20 to 20 to 17. Balls? Or tied? I mean, come on. I mean, even for an Alabama <laughs> grad, I just want to make sure. I don't, I don't want, uh, you know, any T's left uncrossed or I's left undotted. Peyton, we appreciate the time, brother. Thanks so much. And, hey, we'll put a cigar on it. I'll send one to Omaha headquarters if the strange event does go down and Tennessee wins the game. I'll be waiting for it, pal. Thanks, buddy. This weekend preview is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It's not college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. Let's get things kicked off with the biggest game of the weekend. It's number seven. Penn State traveling to Columbus to take on the Buckeyes. That game will be 12 o'clock Eastern time on Fox. Looking forward to this matchup, naturally. This is one that we circle every year as one of the great games of the college football season. Historically, however, it has not been kind to the Penn State Nittany Lions. They've lost 10 of the last 11 against Ohio State. They've lost six straight. Their last win was in 2016, and that was when Grant Haley returned the Marcus Allen field goal block to the touchdown 
and helped spur the Nittany Lions to a Big Ten title. They've lost 14 straight road games against AP top five opponents. Their last victory actually came in 1994. That was against number five, Michigan. So it hasn't been kind at all to Penn State up to this point, but this year might be different and partly because of how they're playing on the defensive side. Now on paper, both teams in this matchup have unbelievable defenses. Penn State ranks second in points per game allowed, while Ohio State is third. Both teams are allowing under 10 points per game entering this contest, and this is the first time an AP Top 10 matchup will feature two teams that are allowing fewer than 10 points per game entering the game since 2006 between LSU and Florida. So it's been a while to see teams playing this high-level defense in a clash between teams that are ranked in the top 10. The one thing and the caveat that a lot of people have pushed back on, well, who has Penn State played against? They've played just one top 50 offense this year. That was West Virginia in the season opener, and West Virginia ranks 48th. So they're not great, obviously, with who they've played against. But offensively, both teams have been pretty dang good. If you look at what Penn State's done to this point, fifth in points per game, they're the only team to rank in the top five in both points per game and opponent points per game allowed. Ohio State ranks third in points per game in the Big Ten, obviously trailing Penn State and Michigan. So two teams that can also fill it up on the scoreboard as well. So very much looking forward to this matchup. And then historically speaking, this is the first AP top 10 matchup where both teams are averaging at least 35 points Well, fewer than 10 points. We already referenced the 10 points per game moment ago. But when you have offenses that are also this high power, it's actually the first time we've had matchups like this with a great defense and great offense since 1973. So nearly 50 years since we've had a matchup like this. That was Notre Dame against Alabama back in 73. Let's talk about the quarterbacks for a moment. Drew Aller has been terrific. Uh, 241 career passes, zero of which have resulted in interceptions. That's the longest active streak of passes attempted without an interception in the FBS. Kyle McCord, on the other hand, had a tough game against Indiana, right? Didn't look real comfortable. But since that point, he's really kind of rounded into form. 11 touchdowns against zero interceptions in the last five games. But there is a little bit of buzz right now in Buckeye land that they might utilize Devin Brown a little bit in the red zone. Now, they seem to have had a package that might have some legs moving forward. Now, Devin Brown, seen him in the red zone at times this year, but I have a feeling that package might grow this week. It might catch Penn State a little bit off guard, and it'll get you an extra blocker in the event in which those yards become very hard to come by there in the red area. Here are the questions that are surrounding the game, like we always do. How does Penn State slow down Marvin Harrison? Now, if you look at Marvin Harrison, statistically speaking, he's been amazing, right? 31 catches, 604 overall, nearly 20 yards per catch and five touchdowns. All that's amazing. That's great. And he torched Penn State last year, had 10 catches for 185 in last year's game. So this is a game that he has played well in in the past, and it wouldn't surprise me if he's played well again this year. The one interesting thing about Marvin Harrison this year, though, is he has had some drops. And for whatever reason, I can't really understand why. I can't ever really quantify these things. They seem to happen in bunches. And if you think the first 11 starts of his career, zero drops. Zero. Well, this year, through six games, he's got five drops, including three last week against Purdue. So it's a little bit strange. He hasn't been at his best 
as far as consistency, but his high-level plays are off the charts, and I, I don't think I need to explain that to any of you guys, but this will be a great matchup in good versus good, too, because I think Harrison, regardless of whether he draws Kalen King or Johnny Dixon, uh, you look at the defensive backs for Penn State, they've done a pretty dang good job, and that's one of the key individual battles that will need to be won by either Penn State or Ohio State, depending on what side you're pulling for. The other question, can JT Tuimolao do it again? Now, last year, now this stat line, I almost have to like double check and triple check this because it's just absolutely absurd. Last year in the game, remember this game came down to the wire last year. He finished the day with six tackles, three tackles for loss, two sacks, two interceptions, one touchdown, one forced fumble, one fumble recovery, and one pass breakup. You heard all those stats. I'm not going to repeat them again because the stat sheet is so absurd that it's almost unfathomable. But unfathomable, whatever it is. I don't know. What it is. It's mind-blowing, if you will. Simpler term. <laughs> I look at JT Tullymolau. He could take over the game. And if you look at how Jim Knowles has kind of handled his defense this year, he's not trying to dictate as much with scheme, and he's really allowing individual players, their talent level, to jump to the forefront. I think that's the right recipe against Penn State. Looking at Penn State's running attack, rushing attack, run game, if you will, is this the game where Penn State running backs go off? Now, they've kind of grinded it out this year, kind of a three yards and a cloud of dust mentality with Catron Allen and Nicholas Singleton. But the thing that I've seen from Singleton, for instance, like if he gets in the open field, he's gone. But there haven't been as many big plays in the run game as there were at times last year. Now, statistically speaking, it's been pretty good. They average 203 yards a game. They're 16th in college football in rushing offense. That's great. And Catron Allen's been very, very solid. I think he's a little bit more of that, you know, pounded in there, hard yardage type of back. And then Singleton, of course, with the top end speed, those guys complement each other really well. So both... I think backs are very capable, but neither are averaging above five yards a carry. So it's been a little bit in bunches, and that's methodical. It's solid, but would love against an Ohio State group to create some big plays. Now, you look at Ohio State's rush defense. It's been kind of the weakest part of their defense in the first half of the season, giving up about 110 yards a game. So maybe they'll be able to run the ball a little bit, but that is a significant question. If Penn State can't run the ball, I think that's a huge advantage naturally for the Buckeyes. Another huge question this game, how healthy is Ohio State? For instance, at the running back position alone, now Travion Henderson didn't play against Purdue, uh, also didn't play against Maryland. But I seem to think, based on what I've read and what I've heard, he's available and will probably be okay in this one. But in the event he can't go or gets a little dinged up, then you would like to rely on Chip Trainum. Well, Chip Trainum, Went down with an injury against Purdue. Now he's got 51 carries on the year and is clearly a very, very important piece. Had the game-winning touchdown against Notre Dame, but he's banged up as well. Mayan Williams didn't play against Purdue, also a running back. So as a result, they've had to rely on Dallin Hayden, who is a really capable back, and every time he's gotten meaningful snaps, he's looked the part. Last year at 102 against Indiana, had 146 against Maryland, Three touchdowns in that game against Maryland. So he's clearly looked the part, but in the event in which Travion can't go, Chip Trainum can't go, Maya Williams can't go, then expect Dallin Hayden to step up in that role, but they're thin at that spot like they were last year. It's crazy how many injuries Ohio State seems to have had at running back the last couple of years. Another 
injury I'm paying close attention to is Emeka Igbuka. Last year, Igbuka had five catches, or excuse me, six catches for 53 yards against Penn State. Now, he's really, really important. And Ryan Day wouldn't give a whole lot of insight as to whether or not he's going to be available this week. If I was kind of reading between the tea leaves, I would hope that he'd try, but I don't know at the moment if he's going to be anywhere near 100%, even if he goes. And then finally, Denzel Burke uh, went down against Purdue. Uh, He says, Ryan Day says that he expects Burke to be back, but we don't know that either. So the injury list for Ohio State is of significance. So I'm looking at that and that's something I'll monitor really close as we get a little bit closer to game town. A couple trends in this game. Penn State has covered six of the last seven against Ohio State. And Ohio State is 2-7-1 against the spread against AP-ranked teams since the start of the 2021 season. This is going to be a little crazy. I'm just going to tell you. I'm taking Penn State. And I, I think Penn State, when you look at the roster, um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Ohio State. When you look at the roster and how they're playing on the defense side, I know it hasn't been against anybody, but I think they are tenacious on defense. I think Ohio State is too. I think this will be a low-scoring affair. This is a low-scoring affair, but I am leaning towards the Nittany Lions. I don't love it by any stretch, picking against Ohio State on the home field with James Franklin, who's never had success in games like this outside of an example or two back in the day. I feel like I'm rolling the dice. But Penn State's played them really close, and I do believe that this is the Penn State team that can get over the hump. They just need to make a couple big plays in the passing game, which is a big question mark, to be able to create some issues for Ohio State and to put the pressure on the Buckeyes up to this point. Game number two. Number 17, Tennessee, travels to Tuscaloosa to take on number 11, Alabama. This game will be 3.30 Eastern time on CBS. Here are the big question marks. Can Tennessee run the football? Tennessee's rushing offense against Alabama's rushing defense. Now, Tennessee leads the SEC and is sixth in college football, averaging 230 rushing yards per game. Now, the magic number for Tennessee in this game and throughout Josh Heupel's tenure is 175 yards. Last year, the Vols rushed for 182 yards against Alabama. Everyone remembers the performance by Hendon Hooker and Jalen Hyatt, but it's not to be overshadowed by how the Vols ran the football last year. 182 yards in the win. And the magic number, like I told you, is 175. In three years under Josh Heupel, Tennessee is 20-2 and when rushing for at least 175 yards. They are 3-7 and when they are below that mark. So I'll be monitoring that close. The race to 175 on the ground for the volunteers. Now, Alabama's going to be tough to run the ball against. They've done a great job this year, allowing just three yards per carry. That's the second fewest in the SEC behind Tennessee. But part of why Tennessee is number one is because of their sack production, which of course accounts against the rushing yardage total. We'll get to that here in just a minute. So Alabama, very stout against the run there in the middle of the defense. Second question. Will Tennessee find some explosiveness? Last year, Tennessee ranked third in the SEC with 80 plays that went for 20-plus yards. Through six games this year, they have just 23 20-yard plays. That's the second fewest in the SEC. Do you guys want to take a guess as to who has the fewest? That would be Auburn. Auburn has 22 plays that went for 20-plus. Tennessee, one of that explosive Josh Heupel tempo offenses, has just one more explosive play than the Auburn Tigers. 
So that's something to take into account. And last year, the reason why Tennessee won the game, they had six yard, six plays that went 20 plus yards in the win against the Tide by itself. So they're going to have to create some explosiveness at some point. If they don't, then it will be very difficult. And the way that they can create those explosive plays gets me to my third question. Will Joe Milton be able to hit some throws downfield? Right now, he's struggling on the downfield throws. Been really inaccurate, been very inconsistent, has had some drops on the perimeter. They've had some balls that he's placed perfectly that the receivers just weren't able to reel in. Right now, he's under seven yards in attempt. He is 14th among 15 qualified SEC quarterbacks as far as yards per attempt. And by comparison's sake, Hendon Hooker actually led the FBS last year with nine and a half yards per attempt. So the passing attack has been pretty limited so far for Joe Milton. Granted, they're going to do a lot of screens. They're going to do a lot at the line of scrimmage. So they'll have plenty of high percentage completions, but they need to get some chunk yardage against what I think is the best defense they've faced up to this point. Then the other side of the coin, can Alabama protect the quarterback? Alabama quarterbacks have been sacked at least four times in six straight games. You heard that right. At least four times in six straight games. Meanwhile, Tennessee is fifth in the country with 24 sacks. Now, before this season, the last SEC team to be sacked four or more times in five straight games was Arkansas in 1997. So Alabama, as far as protecting the quarterback, is among the worst in the SEC in the last 26 seasons. It's been a long, long time since we've seen a quarterback under this much pressure. And Tennessee, clearly, with James Pierce and company, they can breathe a lot of fire with their pass rush. And not all those sacks fall on the quarter, uh, fall on the offensive line. Some fall on the quarterback, too. Milrow's got to get the ball out, and he's got to get the ball out quicker. Because Milrow wants to take shots downfield. That's really what it's all about. He wants to throw the ball deep. And if you look at how Tennessee defends, they try to keep it in front because they believe that pass rush will get home. And then the final question as it relates to this game. Can Tennessee neutralize their road woes? Last year, dating back to last year, yeah, they looked great on the road in Baton Rouge against LSU. They won that game convincingly by nearly four touchdowns. But if you look at the rest of their road performances, they had to grind out an overtime win against Pitt. They didn't look good at all that day against Pitt. They didn't play well against Georgia. They didn't play well against South Carolina, all of which were on the road. Tennessee was down 17-7 to to Pitt. They were down 21-3 to early in the second quarter against Georgia. And obviously, South Carolina was a track meet from the very beginning. And then this year, they've played in only one truly hostile environment. That was a road trip to Florida in week three. And they were down 26-7 to at halftime. So can Tennessee exercise their demons on the road? Because it's been a huge issue for them up to this point. Some trends in this game. Tennessee is 1-5 against the spread as a road underdog since the start of the 20 season. Alabama is 15-6-1 against the spread as a home favorite since the start of the 20 season. And Alabama has covered 12 of the last 17 meetings against Tennessee. I lean Alabama in this game, but I do believe it's going to be really low scoring. I think it's going to be within a score. I think it's going to be you know 28-21 Alabama in this one. Both teams are really good on defense. Both teams will not give up cheap yardage. So it's going to be up to Joe Milton hitting some big plays downfield to potentially pull the upset, but I just don't trust him enough to do that. I think Tennessee keeps it close, and I think they'll run the ball with some efficiency, but I wouldn't be surprised if the passing attack is stagnant on the road against the Crimson Tide. And then game number three, number 16, Duke, traveling to Tallahassee. They're a 14-point dog. That'll be Saturday at 7.30 Eastern time on ABC. Biggest question in this one. You got 
top scoring offense in the ACC against the top scoring defense. What more do you want? Florida State against Duke. The big question is Riley Leonard available. He did not play this past Saturday against NC State. He remains day to day. And Mike Elko said that his quarterback was practicing. Now he's thrived. He's thrived when running the football. I mean, very, very athletic. Averages 65 yards a game on the ground. That can create a lot of problems for a Florida State defense that has at times struggled against mobile quarterbacks. Of course, the one that we circle is the one against Boston College. Castellanos had 95 yards or so on the ground that day against Florida State. That's not going to be good enough. Now, they played much better against Schrader last week for Syracuse. But either way... I think the rushing yards by the quarterback could be advantageous for Duke if they want to pull the upset in the event in which Riley Leonard can't go. And I don't think he will. That's just my assumption. I'd be surprised if we saw him out there. But in the event in which he can't go, retro freshman Henry Bielen will step in, made his first career start last week, completed just four passes. But he did make those four passes count. Had the one big play and the touchdown. I had a couple touchdowns, but the big play was the big one to kind of pad that lead against an offense uh, for NC State that really struggled. Question number two, can Florida State limit Duke's rushing attack? Waters is the running back for Duke, and he's really good. I mean, yards per attempt, they're number one in the ACC in yards per attempt, rushing yards per game and rushing touchdowns. So Duke can control the line of scrimmage. Now, they're not a huge you know, 450, 500-yard type of offense. It's just not who they are. They're really in the high 300s, but they are pretty dang good on the ground. They have rushed for nearly 200 yards a game, and they have played against some quality defenses, I might add. They've played against Clemson. They've played against Notre Dame. These are teams that can get after you against the run, and they've been able to kind of churn some things out in a good way. Jordan Travis will be paying close attention to him in this game. Duke runs a zone defense. They bring zone pressures and they disguise a lot of looks. It's tough to play against. I think Mike Elko's scheme is really, really good because if you play against Florida State and want to play man coverage, you are dead. I'm just telling you right now, you're dead. Why? Because you cannot play Keon Coleman one-on-one. You cannot play Johnny Wilson with his length one-on-one. He's obviously likely coming back from injury. And you take into account the other man coverage aspects as well. Toa Feely, Great in a one-on-one situation out of the backfield and finally got going last week with a big game against Syracuse. And to make it a little bit more difficult, can't play man-to-man because Jordan Travis, if you are, as a defensive back, looking at the wide receivers because you're playing man coverage, Jordan Travis will kill you with his legs as well. So can Jordan Travis take advantage of Duke's zone defense? That's what you're going to get. I think that's a right way to play against Florida State. But you know Mike Elko will have a really good plan because this defense is excellent. They are excellent. And last week, they did a great job against NC State. Four sacks, eight tackles for loss. And they also allowed just three points in the game. That was their fewest allowed by Duke in an ACC game since 2008. That was against Virginia. So they're really, really solid. But a couple trends to consider in this one. Florida State is 3-0 against the spread with teams against teams with winning records this year. And each Duke's last 13 games against AP-ranked opponents have gone under the total. 13 in a row on the under. Of course, Florida State 3-0 against the spread. I like Florida State to win the game. I think they're going to win the game convincingly, especially in the event in which Riley Leonard can't play. But I do believe that Duke's defense will keep it close. I think they'll keep it close. But a big touchdown there at the end will break it open for Florida State. I think it'll be somewhere in the vicinity of a 27-14 type of ball game where it never feels like Duke's going to win, but it isn't the blowout that maybe some people might be expecting. 
Number 13, Ole Miss travels to Jordan-Hare to take on Auburn. This will be Saturday, 7 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. Joe Tessitore on the call. He always loves for me to tell people that he's on the call. They're on the plane. Should be a good one. Very much looking forward to it. Congratulations, Auburn, after facing the number three ranked scoring offense last week and the number nine ranked scoring offense in the last two weeks. Uh, that was Georgia. And Auburn now gets number eight this week. That would be Ole Miss. Ole Miss averaging about 42 points a game this year. And they are terrific as it relates to offensive production, nearly 500 yards a game, 490 or so. So this is a group that has been really good, and they can stress you in a lot of ways. 306 through the air, 183 on the ground. In a traditional offense, that's not balance. But in the modern era, that is balance. If you look at how they can carve you up, really, in both directions. Here are the questions. Will Auburn be able to limit big plays? It's a big, big question mark in the game. Through six games, Ole Miss has 36 passing plays of 20-plus yards. That's fifth in the country. LSU leads the country right now with 44 of such plays. Obviously, LSU had a ton of success last week, creating some big plays, some catch-and-run opportunities, and Auburn had a very difficult time corralling what is a ridiculously good wide receiver core for LSU. But this will not be a significant step down in quality at wide receiver. If you look at what Ole Miss has at wide receiver, a lot of their efficiency comes when they're targeting the transfer from Louisiana Tech, Trey Harris. It's his first year there, obviously, against the highest level of football, and he hasn't missed a beat. Now he's missed a little bit of time, has been a little banged up, just 17 catches on the year, but he's made him count nearly 370 through the year and six touchdowns in five games. So 22 yards a catch, pretty dang impressive when you're looking in his direction. Trey Harris is a guy that you absolutely have to neutralize to the best of your ability. But the guy that's been maybe the most consistent for Ole Miss this year is Jordan Watkins. He's a transfer from Louisville. He's been very, very efficient, averages six yards per catch or six yards, uh, six catches per game and 536 yards on the season with a couple touchdowns too. You also had to account for Dayton Wade, who's very solid, also a transfer from Western Kentucky. So these are the guys that you have to account for because they do have three very, very, very reliable weapons on the perimeter with Trey Harris now healthy. They become, I think, not necessarily an elite group, but a very, very high-end group there on the perimeter, and Auburn struggled with that last week. Question number two. Can Auburn get things going offensively? Auburn currently ranks last in the SEC in total offense. They had just 293 yards last week against LSU. Now, Hugh Freeze kind of hinted this week that there might be some changes. There might be some tinkering with the depth chart. There might be some guys that might be thrust into more, more impactful roles. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm kind of reading through the tea leaves and it makes me think maybe we'll get a little bit more of Robbie Ashford. Now, that's the next question. What's Auburn going to do at quarterback? Well, last week, two straight losses, naturally, uh, on the road. And it's not easy. But Peyton Thorne has, has struggled. Okay? He's, he's struggled a little bit. And the, the passing offense has, has not been what they need at this point. Now, they've given Robbie Ashford a package. But that package is oftentimes provided more of a start, more of a spark than the traditional offense that they've run. If you actually look at Peyton Thorne's numbers last week, he was just five of 13 for 36 before giving way to Ashford 
as the start of the final drive of the first half. Now the offense picked up a couple first downs. It felt like there was a bit of a spark, and then they put Peyton Thorne back in. He threw an incomplete pass, had a ball batted down, and then was sacked on third and long. So, yeah, there was a bit of a spark, but they decided not to really go with things moving in that direction with Ashford anymore. They gave it to Ashford after halftime. They managed a field goal and then had the big pass to Brandon Frazier. But it's just, for whatever reason, I think the stop and start nature where you this guy's in and then you put in this guy and then you put in this guy, It just I think it's affecting the rhythm of what Auburn has offensively. I think they need to either make the role for Robbie Ashford very clearly defined. Hey, you play on third and short. You play in the red zone. Other than that, it's Peyton Thorne. But when you're subbing it series to series, I feel like the offense lacks continuity and it's having a real effect. And I think at this point, it's probably worth giving Robbie Ashford a legitimate look because through four power five games, Peyton Thorne's completing just 54% of his passes under five yards and attempts, just two touchdowns and two interceptions. So they need to look really at the quarterback spot and figure out who gives them the best chance to be successful against some of these teams they'll face down the stretch because it is a difficult road, uh, difficult stretch down, down the rest of the way for Auburn, but there are a lot of games that are very winnable for them. The last question of this one, can Ole Miss figure out Jordan Hare? This has been a house of horrors for Ole Miss. Uh, I don't know why that is. I've played in Jordan Hare. It's a remarkably difficult place to play. It's a great home field environment. Obviously, the fans get into it. It's a really chaotic place. Plus, the visiting locker room, it's not its not great. <laughs> it's an uncomfortable place to go play without question, and the Rebels have shown that. They've gone just 3-17 and 17 since visiting the Plains, including eight losses in the past nine trips. Their only win in that span came in 2015, and you know who was patrolling the sidelines for the Ole Miss Rebels that night. That would be Hugh Freeze, who's now the head coach of the Auburn Tigers. So I think it's going to be very, very interesting. If it's one based on who's on the field, the personnel, Ole Miss has superior personnel. They have a better continuity. They have a more high-powered offense, even though the defense at times has been less than stellar. I think Ole Miss wins the game. Now, Auburn has, however, covered each of the last three meetings against Ole Miss. So maybe Auburn makes it close. I just don't see it. I think Ole Miss is a lot more like LSU. Even though Auburn's a lot better at home, Ole Miss is a lot like LSU. And Ole Miss and LSU might be able to move the ball at will against a defense that clearly struggled last week. Number 14, Utah travels to the Coliseum to take on the USC Trojans. This game will be Saturday night, 8 o'clock Eastern time. I believe it's on Fox. Now, Utah... They knocked off USC twice last year, including the beatdown in the Pac-12 title game, uh, a game that really wasn't all that competitive. They clearly got to Caleb Williams last year. It was not his best performance, but it wasn't as bad as what we saw last week against Notre Dame. He had three first-half interceptions, and if you look at the interceptions, the last two in particular, they were there at the end of the first half. It looked like Caleb Williams was getting frustrated and was just forcing the ball, like desperate to make a play, to just inject some life into the offense. And it felt like to an extent, man, there's a time and a place for that. But the second quarter is not that time. Maybe in the fourth quarter when you got to have it and hey, a pick is what it is, but you have to understand the situational football because it felt like he was doing a little too much. And I just hope that was a one-time performance because something tells me against a team that he's 0-2 against in his career, 
he might try to force a little bit here against Utah as well. The question is, can the USC get the offense? Can USC get the offense going a little bit against Utah? Now, Utah's offense, a defense, excuse me, has been exceptional this year. They have not given up more than 21 points in the game. Now, a lot has been made of Caleb Williams' performance last week, but they got to help him, man. I mean, the offensive line sounds like, if you listen to Lincoln Riley this week, he's going to tweak a couple things. And they got to make sure that Caleb Williams isn't facing as much pressure as he's faced at times this year. Notre Dame defenders last week registered 33 pressures on Caleb Williams. That's the most he's been pressured this year by a mile. Prior to that, Arizona State had the highest mark. That was 18 pressures. So nearly double up against Notre Dame last week. And the offensive line needs to play a whole lot better because if there's one thing we know about Utah, it's that they have some game breakers and have some guys that can take over the game along the defensive line. The other question in this game is, can USC's defense step up and stop Utah's resurgent rushing attack? Now, last week... Utah ran for 317 yards. It's the first time they've eclipsed 300 yards on the ground since the Colorado game last year. Now, a lot of people will react and say, well, you know, it's Cal. Fair enough. I understand that Cal is not a juggernaut on the defensive side by any stretch, but that was only the fourth time that Cal has allowed 300 plus rushing yards since Justin Wilcox was hired six years ago. So dating all the way back to 2017, They've only allowed 300-plus rushing yards four times, and one of them was last week. Obviously, Jaquindon Jackson returning to action was huge, but Sione Vaki's emergence is also very, very significant. If you look at where he's at right now, a guy that's played on both sides of the ball, man, he's got a certain vision level, a toughness, a decisiveness. He showcases a lot of athleticism. And if you look at the one-two punch that they have at running back now, even knowing that the quarterback position is not giving you much, I think Vaki staying on the offensive side might be more impactful for Utah moving forward. You know, they're still pretty good at safety. They're going to be just fine right there. And I think the offensive line last week had by far the best performance of the season to date against Cal. They were moving guys off the ball and they might be able to do so against, against a Trojans defense that has allowed 40 plus points in three straight games for the first time in program history. I will say this though. I do think they did a better job tackling last week. I do believe that. Watching it back, it didn't feel like there were as many guys diving at ankles. It didn't feel like there were as many guys getting juked in the hole. In the three games prior to last week, SC had missed a million tackles, it felt like. But it felt like last week they got Notre Dame ball carriers to the ground. So that's an encouraging sign that they're moving in the right direction, but they can't have the self-inflicted mistakes on special teams, and they can't have the self-inflicted mistakes, obviously, on offense behind their best player. Utah is 13-4 against the spread as a road underdog in the past 10 seasons, and Utah is 12-4 against the spread in October since the start of 2018. I like Utah in the game. I look at USC. I think they have all the bells and whistles that you could possibly want. they got a ton of speed. I don't trust Utah's offense at all. But based on what I saw last week with Vaki and Jackson, I think that rushing attack will neutralize neutralized time of possession. I think they could possess the ball 34, 35 minutes in the game. And I look at Utah, I think they're a very physical football team. Will USC get back off the mat? I certainly hope so. I honestly hope they win the game. I'm kind of indifferent. I don't care who wins, to be honest with you. But I hope they look better because I don't want to be 
beating up on SC the rest of the way. But I think Utah is just the more physical team. I think Utah is a team that's kind of found them their identity the last couple of weeks. And regardless of who's playing quarterback for them, I think they have what it takes to be able to disrupt enough of Caleb Williams' offensive rhythm to be able to ultimately get the win. And then finally, we'll keep it on the West Coast. Washington State at number nine, Oregon. I'll be on the call for this one Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time on ABC. Washington State has looked terrible the last couple of weeks offensively. Against UCLA and against Arizona, they just could not get a lot going. And they really didn't do a great job of protecting Cam Ward. Cam Ward is a very gifted player. If you haven't watched him, I highly recommend you taking a minute and watching what Cam Ward has done before you watch this game on Saturday. The guy, when given time, is electric. Buys time in the pocket, runs around, creates his offense and his receivers is really kind of built around his playmaking ability. He scrambles to throw. He doesn't scramble to run, but he can run if the opportunity presents itself. A group that has struggled the last couple of weeks has been the wide receivers. Josh Kelly was amazing in their first four games, has come back to earth the last couple of weeks, but he got a little banged up against UCLA. There's a lot of hope that he'll be back to at least close to 100% here in the game against the Oregon Ducks. The other thing for Washington State, they have to get Nakia Watson, their running back, going a little bit more. They haven't been able to successfully run the football the last couple of weeks, which has resulted in UCLA and Arizona using just three defensive linemen on the field and dropping eight guys into coverage, and that's going to be really difficult to throw against. So their offensive line for Washington State has to play at a high level this week against what I think is one of the best defenses on the West Coast. Oregon, on the other hand, are they in the position to potentially have a hangover? I think that's a real question. You have a difficult game last week. Much of the ridicule surrounding the game was based on coaching decisions, all these other things. Does it affect them moving forward? This is an Oregon team that has a great quarterback in Bo Nix, going to distribute the ball to excellent playmakers, including Troy Franklin, who has emerged as one of the best receivers in the Pac-12, if not the country. They're going to move him around. They're going to create opportunities for him. And then if he's taken away, there's Tez Johnson. There's a quality tight end group. And I think the best player arguably on their offense is Bucky Irving. This guy is amazing at the running back spot. Tremendous speed, tremendous acceleration. Great make you miss, but runs much bigger than he is. Listed at just 195 pounds, he doesn't run that way. This guy is lightning in a bottle. And if he gets into the open field, that could be 88 and out the gate every time he touches it. As far as the defensive matchup is concerned, obviously they won't be going against each other, but it's going to be huge for Washington State's defensive line. Their defensive events in particular, Ron Stone on one hand, Brennan Jackson on the other, those guys have to play the best game of their career to be able to knock off the Oregon Ducks. And a lot of the Washington State faithful had pointed to last week's last year's game. They had Oregon on the ropes for 55 minutes and they just couldn't finish. Oregon ultimately got the win and survived what was a difficult road trip to the Palouse. Now, they want to emphasize finish. I think it's going to be a great game. I can't wait to be on the call for it. And I hope you all tune in at 3.30 Eastern time on ABC. A few other games we want to get to. Just a couple trends I want to provide you with. If they've been profitable for you, that's great. I hope that it continues. Texas is a 22.5 point favorite traveling to Houston Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time. Texas is 4-0 against the spread following a straight up loss since the start of last season, and they've covered four consecutive road games. So I would expect Texas to go to Houston to get things done and get things done in a convincing matter. I bet they're ticked off. I bet they're mad. 
I think they thought they outplayed Oklahoma in a lot of ways and came up short in the ball game. Houston won on a Hail Mary last week, but I don't think Houston's great. I think Texas handles their business when they go to H-Town and dismantles the Cougars. Number two, Michigan, a 24.5-point favorite at Michigan State. That'll be 7.30 Eastern time on Saturday. Since 2008, the Wolverines are just 5-10 and 10 overall against the Spartans. Now, look at Michigan's offense. They're starting to hum a little bit. Three straight conference games where they've scored 45-plus points. It's the first time in program history, and the run game is starting to really get going behind an offensive line that's starting to gel, man. Blake Corum added a couple touchdowns last week, currently leads the FBS with 12 this year, and J.J. McCarthy has been the definition of efficiency. 93 total QBR, that's the best in college football, completing nearly 80% of his passes. And not all those passes are just dinks and dunks, man. He's pushing the ball down the field into tight windows. So it should be really interesting when they travel to East Lansing. Michigan State is 13-2 against the spread in their last 15 meetings with Michigan. Michigan is 2-8 and against the spread against AP top 10 teams to the start of the 2019 season. I think Michigan rolls in this one. I have a difficult time seeing how Michigan State keeps it close. Michigan's defense is just too much. I don't think Michigan State can generate enough offense at all against Michigan. I think they win the game and win the game going away. I wouldn't be shocked if it's like a 42-10 type of game for the Michigan Wolverines. Let's go to Arizona State at Washington. Now, a couple interesting notes here. Washington, possible hangover spot. Big emotional win last week. Reading the press clippings a little bit. Arizona State's coming to them. If Washington were traveling to Arizona State, I would have this one circled and be like, look out, Washington. Just be careful. Be careful. This game will be Saturday at 10.30 Eastern time on FS1. Washington's a four-touchdown favorite in the game, but a couple of trends to take into account. Arizona State is 14-1 and against the spread in their last 15 meetings with Washington. Arizona State is also 18-6 and against the spread as a double-digit underdogs as the start of the 2010 season. I think Arizona State hangs around for a bit, but they won't be able to hang around for 60 minutes. I think Washington ultimately pulls away, but I think Arizona State will keep it within the number there of 28. UCF travels to Norman, Oklahoma, where there are a 20-point dog Saturday noon Eastern time on ABC. An interesting nugget in this one is Dylan Gabriel's facing off against his former team. Gabriel ranks fifth all-time in passing touchdowns and passing yards in UCF history. So is there a little bit of a grudge? Is there a little bit of a vendetta? I don't know the answer to that, but I don't see how UCF keep this one close, and I don't see how this game doesn't have a million points involved. I think Oklahoma's defense has gotten a whole heck of a lot better. I do not like at all what I've seen from UCF on the defensive side. Oklahoma's covered seven consecutive games dating back to last season. That's tied with Penn State for the longest active cover streak in the FBS, and UCF is 1-6 and six against the spread following a bye week since the start of the 2019 season. I think Oklahoma wins this one and wins this one big. Minnesota is at number 24, Iowa. Line is five and a half. Total is 31 and a half. That's right. You heard me right. That's not team total. That's total total. 31 and a half between the Gophers and the Hawkeyes. That'll be Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time. These teams have really an offense that is a struggle bus for sure. I mean, Iowa has been a bit of a mash unit, man. They have lost so many guys. Whether it's Lachey, Eric All this week is now out. Cade McNamara has lost for the season. They've lost a running back or two. I mean, it's amazing to me just how many guys Iowa's lost specifically on the offensive side. 
It's amazing, though, that they still find ways to get it done. Iowa has three wins this season when they have 250 or fewer yards offensively. No other team in the FBS has one. More than one. So they have three. No one else in college football has more than one. Either the first Big Ten team since Wisconsin in 2004 with at least six wins in the first seven games and score fewer than 150 points. Now, the trends in this one, the total of 31 and a half is the fourth lowest total in FBS games since 2000. Iowa has covered five consecutive games against Minnesota, and Minnesota is 0-4 against spread against AP top-ranked teams at the start of last season. I like Iowa to win the game, but you know it's an Iowa game. It's going to be really ugly. Just enjoy how ugly it is. I know I'm going to. South Carolina travels to Como. They're a seven-point dog on the road in Columbia. That'll be Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time on the SEC Network. One thing to watch in this one, two electric wide receivers in this game on either side. you got Missouri's Luther Burden, who's got over 800 yards already, and South Carolina's Xavier Leggett, who's got 750 yards. They're second and third in the SEC in receiving this year. So two guys that could completely take over the game offensively. I think both have a chance to with some of the perimeter weapons defensively that these teams have. I think you can make some plays in the back end. That's for sure. A couple trends in this game. Missouri has covered each of their last four meetings against South Carolina, and Missouri has gone over the total in six of seven games this year. So I'm thinking... Missouri probably win the game 10, 14 points, but South Carolina is going to get their points. I think this is going to be a track meet in some ways. I'm thinking like 38-28 or so. I think it's going to be a high-scoring affair there in Columbia, South Carolina. Virginia is traveling to Chapel Hill to take on the newly ranked top 10 North Carolina Tar Heels. Tar Heels are a 23.5-point favorite. It'll be Saturday at 6.30 Eastern time. And the Tar Heels are 6-0 and for the first time since 1997 when they started 8-0. and And each of those wins, they've scored 30-plus points. This season marks the second time North Carolina began the season with six straight 30-plus point games. They also did so. Tell me if you can remember this. Tell me if you remember. 1914. Over 100 years since North Carolina has looked this good on the offensive side en route to an unblemished 6-0 and record. Virginia is 15-4 and against the spread following a bye week since the start of the 20, 2009 season. North Carolina is 0-3 against the spread as a double-digit favorite since the start of the 2022 season. North Carolina is 1-5 against the spread in the last six games against Virginia. I think Virginia will hang around. I think Virginia will make this thing interesting. I'll probably chum it up early, but I think North Carolina finds himself in the second half and wins the game comfortably. I'm thinking somewhere along the lines of a 31-17, 35-17 type of performance where North Carolina is never really in doubt, but it's probably not as pretty as you might like. Finally, Air Force will be taking the field this week. And Air Force plays at Navy. They have a chance to win the Commander-in-Chief trophy outright. So a big opportunity for Air Force, but they are going to be without their starting quarterback. So be mindful of that when watching the Falcons this year. He's going to be sidelined for quite some time. We know there's a group that's still going to play great defense. And they're still going to be able to run the ball and control the clock. This will be an interesting matchup. I think it's going to be a little bit low scoring, but I'm not sold on Navy at all. I think where Air Force wins the game going away, even though they're not at 100% offensively. Thanks for being with us. We so appreciate you coming to us, listening to us on a week-to-week basis. We strive to try to give you the best possible content, especially on Thursdays, so that you can be as prepared as humanly possible heading into the weekend with some of the big games coming up. A ton of great ones to look forward to this weekend. We'll be back on Sunday to tell you what we saw, what we thought. We'll break them down in depth on Monday. And then, of course, we'll be off and running in week nine of the college football season. Please take just a half second to like to rake, and to subscribe. 
to our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, or if you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up button right below. We so appreciate you guys and continue spreading the word. Word of mouth is massive for us here as we try to continue to grow here at Always College Football. For all of us here at ACF, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.